I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hey, friends. Welcome to the show. You're listening to Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks, and I'm so glad you're here. Have you heard of the Disorder Channel? I'm sure you've heard me yammer on about it. But go download it. It's free. It's on Roku or Amazon Fire. It hosts hundreds of rare disease films. But what I wanted to tell you about is their newest show called Pain Points. It's an easy, quick five-minute watch, and it will be sure to give you a chuckle. So go check it out. Also, it's almost time for the 2023 Rare Disease Fair, Seattle. Seattle Rare Disease Fair. Carolina Summers puts it on, and she does a stellar job every year, and every year it grows. You can register for virtual or in person here in Seattle it's on May 5th and May 6th, rarediseasefair.com. I hope to see you there. My guest today is super cool, and he's the CEO and founder of probablygenetic.com, where they seek to give genetic testing to families who are experiencing symptoms of a rare genetic disorder. So we're talking about some cool stuff that they're up to and resources that are available to families like all of you listening. So I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. They're doing amazing things that aren't even announced yet as this episode comes out, but keep your eye on them. And especially for my people, you know who you are, who have a diagnosis of cerebral palsy and you haven't got genetic testing, at least whole exome or whole genome sequencing. Please go to probablygenetic.com, fill out a survey, see if you qualify for a free genetic test. We need to get these patients diagnosed who have been in buckets and under umbrellas for too long. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with the lovely Lucas Lang. Hello, Lucas. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Effie. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. I know that we've missed each other here and there, so we've made it. And I'm excited to share probably genetic with all of our friends listening today. I think people have maybe heard about it. The name is obviously super catchy, so great job. And your website is beautiful. Thank you. I know you specialized in genomics with your education. You have a PhD and specifically in rare genetic diseases. Am I correct? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, first of all. But what led you to that? Why did you choose rare diseases when, when you were going for that degree? I'm a chemical engineer by training and did my master's at the University of Cambridge and at the Institute of Biotechnology sat next to somebody who was working on genetics. And I just got fascinated with it and figured out if there are important changes happening in the 21st century, I think one of them is genetics and the other one is climate change. And either one of those needs to be a field that I want to be involved in. And then got a Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford and 
interviewed lots of different professors working on different parts of genetics. And the two professors I ended up working with were sort of rare disease icons. One of them built the 100,000 Genomes Project in the UK, which for those of you who don't know, it is the largest rare disease study on the planet. And the other one uh, did a whole lot of the precursor studies to build up an evidence basis that said we need more genetic testing for rare disease patients. And ideally, we need whole genome sequencing. And I got involved with those two professors and absolutely fell in love with the work and then joined their research group and started working on it. So it was honestly pretty serendipitously, and I feel very lucky that it turned out that way. Yes, I love that. You were in the right spot at the right time. Yeah. Did you happen to ever meet our friend Charles Stewart while you were over there with the with the Genome Project team? So I so I didn't meet him via that, but um, our lab used different types of bioinformatics software to analyze DNA. And I met Charles by virtue of him also working on that type of software, both as an advocate, but also as, as his main job. Um, and so I, I met him once at a, um, at a meeting or maybe on a phone call. But yeah, he's fantastic. Yes, he's an angel on earth. So cool. Well, Lucas, can you tell us how Probably Genetic was born? You, you've been inspired to like not choose climate change, thank you, and choose rare disease. And then you ventured off with a buddy. When I was working on the 100,000 Genomes Project as a PhD student, you're the grunt that has to do a whole lot of the manual work to get all the data that you need to analyze DNA. And as part of that, I needed patients' phenotypes in a structured format so I could uh, figure out what was causing their disease when I analyzed their genome. And the way that you would get phenotypes at the time is you would get like a 40 email back and forth exchange between my supervisor and the referring specialist for the patient. And then you would also get a Word document that had some information on those patients in it, and lots of different other formats uh, in which you would get the phenotypic data. And I would then sit there and I'd have to manually go through those exchanges and try to figure out what's the patient's phenotype so that I could plug it into my database. And that's a really mind-numbing process. And once you've done that for maybe five or six patients who've got the same disease, by the time you read patient number seven email exchange, before you even look at their DNA, you kind of think, I think I might know what this patient has. And you don't know it with 100% certainty, but you can probably develop a really good guess if a patient has a central nervous system disorder and maybe what specific subtype you think they might have. And so very quickly, this thought pops into your head, which is now in everybody's heads, which is, if only I had an algorithm that could mine this text and get the phenotypes and then figure out what the patient has, then I could just identify a whole lot of these patients purely based on information that already exists on them, for example, in electronic medical records. So that was the idea. If we could develop an algorithm like that, we might be able to flag these patients who are currently undiagnosed to their doctors and tell them, hey, doctor, this one patient that you're seeing right now might have an undiagnosed genetic disease. Please go get them tested because doctors not knowing that somebody might have an undiagnosed disease that could be tested for using a genetic test is a huge problem. And uh, so a friend of mine and I, who ended up being my co-founder, ventured off, didn't talk to any doctors, didn't look at electronic medical records, didn't talk to any patients, and developed this algorithm, a prototype for it, and said, this is going to be amazing, uh, and then took to the research hospital at Oxford and told them, we've got this thing, we, can, we think it can be great, we can surface all these patients for you. And they said, that's going to be fantastic. This is what our electronic medical record system looks like. And then open it up, and it turns out that hospital doesn't have one electronic medical record system. It's got four. Every specialty has got their own. And the data that's in the system is not the structured data or maybe digitized text we were hoping for. 
It's like 95% scans of handwritten physician notes. And so we were like, oh God, we just, we wasted six months of our time developing a thing that's never going to work. And I was really frustrated and went to a genetics conference in San Diego. This is 2018. And listen to a talk by Julia Vitorello of uh, the Mila's Miracle Foundation, where she talked about Mila's diagnostic odyssey. Mila had a, a condition called Batten disease. And I then pulled Julia aside after and talked to her and said, hey, we, we're trying to do this thing. I'm trying to get to patients' phenotypes. We think we can find all these patients and get them diagnosed in that way. What do you think about that? And Julia said, I know exactly what you're talking about because before Mila got diagnosed, and I've never even heard of genetic diseases, I knew that she had an autism diagnosis. I knew that she was having seizures. I knew that she was losing her vision. I knew that she was looking funny when she walked down a hallway. And based on her telling me those four terms, I thought the phenotype of this kid lives rank free in this mom's head. Maybe the way to find these patients is not to integrate into electronic medical records, which is difficult and really expensive and impossible to scale. Maybe we have to build phenotyping tools for parents or depending on the condition patients so that they can give us just enough just accurate enough phenotypic data so we can develop a first guess at whether or not this patient could have an undiagnosed genetic disease and that's basically where the idea came from so julia gave us the inspiration for what we're doing right now and so based on that we decided okay we think we're going to build a company around this raise venture capital and then started building this up um, where the core idea was Number one, develop great phenotyping technology that you can put on the web so that parents or patients can tell you what they have. And then number two, couple that with a telemedicine genetic testing service so that if we do find patients who we think might be undiagnosed genetic disease patients, we can just ship them a test kit and confirm what they have, give them a clinical lab report, and send them on their way to hopefully a much more qualified person than us who actually knows how to treat their condition. So that's, that's kind of where it came from. That's an awesome story. I did not know that. Shout out to sweet Mila and Julia. Another place that you were in at the right time. That's so cool. The symptoms living rent-free in parents' heads and realizing that is so brilliant. I know you say you wasted six months of your life, but that's barely any time compared to all of these other companies who still don't understand about going directly to the caregiver and the patient and incorporating that from the very first get-go. So I think that's that's actually a pretty big success on your end. Thank you. And the electronic medical records is just like a whole other episode of what a disaster and how disjointed it is. Yeah. I think one thing that people often don't under, don't appreciate is that learnings we have from common diseases do not necessarily translate to rare diseases. In common diseases, like let's say you're working on heart failure, the data on those patients who have heart failure likely lives in one system at one hospital, and there is a small number of physicians who are treating all the patients for one geographic area that have that condition. And that's because there's usually only one aspect to your phenotype, right? It's heart failure. But for rare disease patients, because the phenotype of almost all of these diseases is so complex, right? Like you don't just have autism and you don't just have seizures and you don't just have vision problems and you don't just have heart problems because of that the data is distributed in lots of different systems and i think that's why you have to build any of these approaches patient-centric because the only place where all that information comes together is in the parents minds and the drive or server or whatever you have and you've got your kids data on 
or for the patient in the same way. So that's why it has to be patient-centric. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned this before, but like that whole system kind of reminds me of my husband's life. Like my husband is a county prosecutor and then a lot of the other families are like sheriff detective people. And none of those computer systems talk to not even really each other, but they also don't really talk to other states. So like, it's not real when you are listening to like a crime story that you can just check about what this criminal did in another state because their stuff doesn't talk to each other. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing. You're so right. Yeah, it's just not searchable. Okay, so can you explain like the very first survey? So you come up with like these lists of questions to kind of batch people. And I know the first the first like trial survey, I don't know what you would call it, was on autism. So can you kind of explain the findings and why it was so important to start with perhaps autism on the first round? Sure. So the the mission of the company is to diagnose 200 million rare genetic disease patients. We think there is about 400 million people on the planet who've got rare diseases and at least 50% of them aren't diagnosed. And one challenge that we have to overcome is how do you find these patients in the first place? And that's why we, you know, do a ton of online advertising and build with, develop uh, programs with advocacy groups and work with influencers so that people can find out about us. The second piece is developing the technology so that we can phenotype patients and get a good guess at what they might have. And then the third piece is getting those patients genetically tested. That's the, the product side of it. The challenge in that is genetic tests are really expensive. And people think like the costs are going down and they are going down, but they're still really expensive. And if you want to get to 200 million people, billions of dollars that have to go down the, uh, that have to be spent just to, to get those patients diagnosed. And so in order to finance this whole thing, we uh, work with pharmaceutical companies who need to find patients for clinical trials or for already approved treatments. So that's broadly how, how the company works and sort of how the business model works. And the very first area that we thought about, um, as you said, are conditions that present with autism as part of the phenotype. And there's a couple of reasons why we decided that that's a good area to get a first footing in. The first reason is there are lots and lots of rare diseases for which autism is part of the phenotype, but it's not the only part of the phenotype, which means there is a large underdiagnosis rate in mostly children who have an autism diagnosis where really a genetic disorder is at play, but the rest of the kid's phenotype hasn't been recognized, they haven't been tested, so they just fly under the autism label. That's part one of the reason. Part two of the reason is most of those conditions we know how to test for, right? Genetics as a science is an evolving field. There are conditions where we are, as a scientific community, almost certain that they are inherited because we can see that related family members have got the same condition, but we can't figure out what's causing them. That's likely because the cause is more complex than what we can currently test for. But for a lot of conditions that present with autism, we know that if we run a test, we have a good chance at finding the disease-causing variant in the genome. And the third reason uh, why why we started in that area is because there are a lot of pharma companies that are already working on a lot of these conditions, right? Like Allison from FAST, for example. There's a lot of pharma companies working on Angelman syndrome. Um, there's now more and more companies working on SYNGAP1 and STXPP1 and KCNT1 and like all these other disorders. So there, is a, there are partnerships with pharma companies we can build to actually finance the entire operation. So underdiagnosis, ease of testing, and, and already existing industries why we decided autism is a good place to start. And we've since also launched programs in neuromuscular disorders 
in immunodeficiencies and in neurodegenerative disorders, specifically certain types of dementia, including the one that Bruce Willis just got diagnosed with. Yeah. Tell me you're, you're going to launch cerebral palsy, please. It's like a pain in my neck. We are. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, so many of these families, even today, they'll get put in this bucket of either autism or seizures or CP, and they're they're just left. And these families don't necessarily understand that there's more to the story. And I don't know if the doctors are busy or if they just don't care or they don't know or whatever the reasons are. But these families take that as their label and they take that as their sole diagnosis. And it's just not complete. At least most of the time, I would say it's just not complete, which is why I think platforms like Probably Genetic is so valuable because one, it sounds like it's probably faster than waiting for a a genetics appointment or and all the referral and the approval, but also just easier, more accessible wise that this can just come to their home, especially when you have a sick kid. Yeah. Most of our early product development was genuinely driven by inspiration that Julia Vitarello gave us in the early days. And she told us, you need to build a system that I can use in between my dropping off Mila at therapy and running errands at the supermarket while I'm sitting in my car in the parking lot and I'm having a mental breakdown and I've got five minutes to worry about what's actually going on with my daughter. And it has to work on my phone. And so that's that's the scenario that all of our product developments focused on. And so right now, when the parent sees an ad or a blog post or whatever it is describing our service, and they follow that link, it takes them to a website where they have to spend on average about seven minutes to give us information. And then that's all they do. And then they submit the information to us. And um, if we are able to offer them a test, then roughly two business days after they submitted They've got a test kit in the mail, and then they collect the sample, ship it back to us. We handle all the testing, and then about six weeks later, they have their uh, genetic test result in a clinical uh, or a genetic counseling session, and it's entirely free to them. We don't ask for credit card information. We don't ask for insurance information, none of that. So it's, it's designed for exactly what you described, which is like ease of use, fast, simple. Yeah. Julia is absolutely right. We want our entire life to be run in between those easy moments (laughs) to make it manageable. I know that you offer this free and I know the reasons, but I know that when you say that ears perk up and go, okay, but what about my privacy? Yeah, that's a great comment. So the, as I mentioned earlier, the business model here is we work with predominantly pharma companies and also some patient advocacy groups that are really well endowed and that pay for these programs where the number one interest of those advocacy groups and those pharma companies is we have to find more patients. And the reason for finding more patients is because you need to be able to fill clinical trials. And once a drug is actually developed, you want to be able to get as many patients as possible onto that drug. And if you're an advocacy group and there is nobody working on your condition, which is most advocacy groups, then you need to put in the legwork currently to find enough patients so that a business development team at a pharma company is even interested in thinking about launching a therapeutic program for your disease. Because they don't want to do this for conditions where they don't know if they'll ever have enough patients to treat. So that's kind of the the core problem we're solving. Now, so what do these advocacy groups and what do those pharma companies pay for? They pay for data. We never hand out identifiable information on patients. Uh, and we never hand out information that, that you would not be aware of. We've got a really rigid uh, informed consent process and other mechanisms to let people know just exactly what information is being shared. And then all the information is aggregated 
and or anonymized so nobody can re-identify you with it. The number one point of interest that the pharma companies have is who are the physicians who are treating these patients? And that's a really great thing for us because we don't have to tell them much about the patient. All we have to tell them is this is the doctor who is treating a patient with STXBP1. And then the pharma company can call that doctor and tell them, we don't know who your patient is, but we do know that you have one patient who could be a fit for our clinical trial or maybe even our treatment. If you doctor think they're fit, please talk to them. So that's the number one data point. Like it doesn't give the pharma company any information on the patient, but it does tell them who the doctor is. And the way in which we know who the doctor is because patients tell us. Um, as part of the intake flow, we ask them, who are your treating doctors? Part one. Part two of what pharma companies are interested in and patient advocacy groups is what types of genetic variants do patients like this have? Because not all variants are created equal and different patients with different variants in the same gene have different phenotypes. The pharma companies and the advocacy groups need to know, well, which variant causes what phenotype for a variety of reasons. So that's important. And the third important point is, can we get in touch via probably genetic with the patients? So if patients come in via our program, we already have communications with them because we have to let them know what the test results are and we have to let them know how to book genetic counseling sessions and all that. And then if somebody got tested through us, we are a pharma company that says, hey, this person who we don't know who that is with this particular variant, could you let them know about a clinical trial that we're running because we think they might be a fit for it? Then we can pass on that communication to the patient. And equally, if people say, I don't want you to get in touch with me at all, aside from wanting to get the test result, then they can let us know too, and then we don't get in touch with them. So that's, that's basically how it works. Mm, that's very cool. Give me a little rundown on, like, I know Mike Gralia from SRF has partnered with you and you you touched on how uh, patient advocacy groups can kind of set up their their surveys and their lists. So can you explain how maybe new or highly motivated patient advocacy group who's looking to kind of gather this data, find more patients and insert themselves to become delectable enough for a pharma company to partner with them? Like, what can they do? And what have you seen specifically, if you can share, from Sir Mike's data that has been happening over the last year with you? Sure. So the core problem that we solve for advocacy groups is we help you find patients. So let's say you've got 50 people on the planet that you're aware of right now who've got your condition. We help you take that to more than 50, 100, 200, what have you, so that you can then go and talk to the pharma company and tell them, hey, I am identifying more and more of these patients you need to work on this because not only is it ethically right, it's also a good business model for you because there is a market that is substantial. So that's the problem we, we help solve. We help you find patients. The most important thing here to understand is that one of the single most valuable tools as a patient advocate have to find these patients is what you're already doing, which is your own advocacy. You've got a website that you're promoting. In your case, you've got a podcast, you have social media groups, you've got an Instagram account, you've got all of these different channels where you're constantly drumming up attention about your own disease. And what inevitably happens is people will land on one of your channels that have a disorder or whose kid has a disorder that at the very least is similar to your condition you're advocating for, or is maybe even exactly that condition. 
And what you want is people land on your website who are undiagnosed, who might just have your target condition is you want to get them diagnosed so that they can become part of your tribe. And equally, if Mike finds a patient who lands on his website, that's actually one of your patients, Effie, then you want to know about that patient too. And so the, the idea that we came up with is we're trying to build out this invisible network that has all the different patient advocacy groups plug into where you put a button on your website that says undiagnosed question mark if so click here and then people click on that then we run the processing so that we can collect the information on them and get them tested and tell them if they have a specific condition and then we can link those patients back to you so if one of your patients surfaces anywhere in that network let's say somebody lands on mike's website they click the button they turn out to have your target condition then we would let the patient know about your advocacy group and forward them to you so it becomes this like enormous network that lives on the internet that has a really large capture of patients who come in the door. So that's kind of, that's kind of the core idea. Patient advocacy groups can work together to find each other's patients is basically the message here, message here which is very powerful and I think is super underutilized. The way in which we work with patient advocacy groups is with two different models. The first one is entirely free. That's basically exactly what I just described, where you put a button on your website and we then work with you to advertise against that button. For example, a lot of patient advocacy groups don't know that you get $10,000 in monthly free Google advertising budget. And we help you to set up that system and launch ads so that you can use it to start finding patients. You don't have to do anything for it. You just have to partner with us. That's the free model. And then um, for really well-endowed advocacy groups, we've got a couple of those. Uh, we build entire big programs with them where not only do we put the button on your website and sort of do information sharing with you and help you become part of this invisible network, but we also start testing patients who we think have your target condition and then kind of grow your tribe. So that's broadly the model. Free tier and then a, and a, then a more expensive tier. The more expensive tier is usually targeted at pharma companies and most advocacy groups can't afford it. And the reason for it is these genetic tests are just really damn expensive. So that's why we came up with the free tier. And then what we've been doing with Mike, this has been running for, um, I'm going to say like 12 months or so, is he helped us train our algorithm that selects patients for testing for Syngap1. So Mike took the link to our platform, sent it to his community, and because the Syngap1 tribe is just fired up, uh, within 24 hours, I think we had over 100 people who submitted to the platform and shared their phenotypes with us. We were then able to train an algorithm that is specific to Syngap1 and knows how to recognize Syngap1 patients from patients who don't have Syngap1. And what we're now doing is we are actively pitching pharma companies to get the pharma companies to pay for testing so that we can start testing a whole lot of these suspected Syngap1 patients we currently have in our system. And um, the learnings from this already have been incredible. The first one is this type of network scales incredibly fast. That's tech French for a ton of people sign up to it really quickly. Like we're talking thousands over a very small time period. And the second learning from it is the diagnostic yield we have is over 50% for seizure disorders, meaning the patients we test, more than half of them to precise currently roughly 52% have a genetic seizure disorder, which just tells you the patients you can attract via this invisible network do in fact have these disorders. In other words, the, the whole network idea works. And so 
our job right now is to sign up as many patient advocacy groups as possible so we can make the network bigger and find more patients of all of these disorders and sign up more and more pharma companies so we can test more people to then again find more patients. So we're kind of trying to build a bridge between those those two aspects. Lucas, that's so cool. And I love the idea of that invisible network behind the scenes. It's remarkable in also a way for us as people who are, it's a lot less legwork in emails, right? In finding these patients and connecting these patients. I know even just like hosting this podcast, how many people reach out to me and say, my kid, my kid has this, my kid has this. And like how many times I've connected someone and how I've even found two potential CTNMB1 patients who ended up being CTNMB1 patients. Because while this world is big, and I hope you find these 200 million people, at this point, for the people seeking it out, like, they can find each other. And if, if machine learning can help do that, thank you. Yeah. And the important message here is you're already, you're delivering the proof of concept, basically, right? Because by virtue of you doing an amazing job with your podcast and building up a really big community of people who care about rare diseases, but also care specifically about diseases with a cerebral palsy like phenotype and maybe even CTN and B1, they find out about your podcast and then they land on your podcast, right? And that audience that you're building out, you should you should then use to just have a super easy pipeline to actually get those people confirmed. And if they're part of your tribe, have them become part of the CTN and B1 tribe. And if they're part of somebody else's tribe, have them become part of somebody else's tribe. And I don't know if you've tried this. I'm just trying this right now. But if you type in the CTNNB1 phenotype into Google, chances are pretty high at the top, all of your websites pop up, right? Like your foundation pops up, your podcast pops up, every, everything else pops up. And everybody who's a patient advocate who's doing a good job has managed to do this. So for, for your phenotype, all the stuff that you're putting on the web are the highest ranking websites on Google. And that's also the websites that any parent is going to see first when they look for what the hell is going on with my kid. Um, and so that's kind of the idea, like all the work you're already doing as an advocate, turn that into a patient finding tool. That is so cool. And also good to know. I haven't Googled all that stuff in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I need like a nerdy, a nerdy Lucas behind the scenes. Here. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. And if I, yeah, if I just look for a CTNNB1, like all the first things are, it's just you. Cool. Well, my parent and patient group is definitely becoming empowered over the last while. So watch out. There is a free aspect. That's great. I think every single patient advocacy group that has any bandwidth whatsoever should at least pop one of those on their websites, especially to contribute to maybe this invisible network and then maybe explore talking about making something a little more comprehensive and detailed to find more patients, because that's the goal of all of us, I think, is to find more patients so we can yeah, so we can get some treatments and therapies and maybe cures to these kids, especially the ones coming up, and not make this such a dramatic and fatal scene. That's actually a really good reminder of something that I should have mentioned, which is all the patient advocacy groups that we partner with in that free model, we show you what the phenotyping tool, the questionnaire that we have patients complete currently looks like. And then we ask you to tell us what we're missing. You know, if you tell us, hey, like you're asking for these three movement-related phenotypic terms, but all of our kids have these other two terms as well, then we just incorporate it. So we rely on your feedback. Or if you tell us all of our kids get specific seizures when there are alternating light and shadow sources, then we ask for that. Or if you tell us 
our kids always get this particular diagnostic test done four years before they ever get the actual right test done, then we can ask for that too. So all of that information you can give us, we rely on. And then over time, what we're doing is we're building out this phenotyping platform to make it really, really good for your target condition. The first thing that we've already launched is just structured phenotypic terms we ask for on the website, as well as unstructured terms where we do natural language processing and things like that. The second thing that we just launched in our uh, pediatric central nervous system disorder program is we now collect facial photos of patients because over half of rare diseases have a facial phenotype. Um, and then over time, we're going to launch other things, right? Like automatic video analysis, audio analysis, analyses of photos of skin, hands, feet, ears, like anything that could be distinct to these disorders so that you know, the mom that's sitting in her car and that's got her mental breakdown between two different types of errands and all she has time for is five minutes on her phone can just give us a text, snap a photo and record her video uh, of her like daughter on the back seat or her daughter trying to stand up from the floor. And that's it. That's kind of what the goal is. And then eventually we'll be able to share that type of data back to the advocacy groups as well so that if pharma companies ask you, well, what percentage of your population have GARA sign, you can tell them 43.5% because I collected this data on 100 people. Oh, my gosh, Lucas, this is amazing. I'm so <laughs> glad your brain and your partner's brain are on this. I can't tell you how many times. I mean, have you been listening to my show, Lucas? Yeah. That we've said like <laughs> facial recognition would be so important. Even just like being a regular random hairstylist in Seattle, like at this point, I can I look and talk to so many families that I can tell a lot of the time where that kid belongs. And I'm not even kidding because I see them all the time. And especially like with our CT and MB1 kids, they all look like siblings. They look like twins most of the time. Yeah. So that's a cool thing. And I do want to put a pin in what you said right before that about just the nuances of this of our symptoms and how, you know, whether they're having a seizure and dim or whatever, or the gait specifically in the morning versus the evening, like those specific things that maybe no doctor would necessarily like pay that much attention to in a in a quick appointment that they have. But as an expert who is dealing with the disease at home as a patient or a caregiver, they can deliver those precise symptoms and you can create like this actual accurate survey around around these phenotypes. It's very cool. Yeah, I'll give you another example of uh, uh, that I think is really illustrative of this. I was talking to a patient advocate about their son last week. And there's very few kids who've got this particular type of condition. And this particular kid has no hunger sensation, but that's not documented anywhere in the literature. And these parents are convinced this is part of the phenotype. Our kid does not eat. If we if we don't feed him, he won't eat for days because he just has, doesn't get hungry. And like as a parent, you know that stuff. But when you're sitting in your you know developmental pediatrician's office and they ask you about milestone achievement and all that, you might just not you might not think about the fact that your kid also isn't hungry. But if you prompt parents and ask them does your kid want to eat when you don't make your kid eat? Then they're going to tell you, no, like it's really hard to get my kid to eat. That's very interesting, especially when you have so much going on anyways, and you, you're you trying to maximize a short appointment while being stressed out and trying to listen and trying to manage your kid in the appointment. You might forget to deliver those things that maybe you just have like pillow talk over at home of what's going on in your house, but they're actually big red fire trucks. Okay, one last question, Lucas, and I'll let you go. I just wanted to know if there's any personal story that you can share that's perhaps connected to like maybe one of the most rewarding aspects of starting your company so far. 
yeah, when we started the company, we like, obviously we didn't communicate this to people outside, but we thought if we can do this thing and we were able to test and confirm just one kid slightly earlier, then they would have otherwise gotten an answer or maybe they would have never gotten an answer. Then, then we've done our job. Like that's all we, that to us would have felt like the biggest accomplishment. And, um, it took us, it's really hard to build the type of technology we're building and build the type of service. You have to go through tons of hurdles. You got to raise a ton of money. You have to recruit really smart people and uh, you have to deal with all the compliance constraints so that you can make the service safe for people and you are within the bounds of all the regulation to do it. So it just took a long time, much longer than you thought. And like you're it takes a real toll on your personal mental health also to to do this type of stuff and then we eventually got to this point where as a team we had this like nasa you know rover landing on the mars type moment where we're sitting in front of our dashboard and we knew that data on a patient had just come in and the, we're looking at the website to see well just exactly what disease do they have do we first of all can we diagnose anything in them and second of all is it what we've been looking for? And we literally at this moment where the, the Wi-Fi is kind of bad and the website's like slowly loading and line by line it pops up and then we look for the person's disease and we're like, oh my God, this person's actually got the disease that we thought they did purely based on them telling us their phenotype on a website. Um, and like that was incredible to, you know, have this like huge sense of accomplishment because we made a difference in somebody's life based on this crazy idea we had because... Julia told me that her kid's phenotype lives in her head. And, you know, it took like two years from that conversation with Julia to actually get to that point. That was, that was crazy. And what was even crazier, and this, this we hadn't expected, was we then looked at the patient's like more detailed diagnostic odyssey data because they, they tell us, you know, what's going on with you? Like what's been going on with you? In this case, this was a patient with an ultra rare mitochondrial disorder that comes with very severe muscle weakness. And as part of the severe muscle weakness, patients lose their ability to breathe independently just because their muscles can't support breathing anymore. And so this person had literally seen an ad to our service on Facebook while they were hospitalized on a mechanical ventilator. It's sort of a bittersweet moment, right? Like the sweet side of it is we were able to find this person and get them an answer and get them a clinical lab report that says, this is what you have. Tell your doctor to initiate the next steps for you. That's the good side of it. And then the bitter side of it is how on earth are we living in a, in a world where this person can be on a mechanical ventilator in a hospital with a muscle weakness disorder that's so severe that your facial features start literally drooping. And the way that they find out what they have is because of a Facebook ad like that. It's, great proof of concept for us, but also unbelievable that um, nobody else had the thought to get them genetically tested before. Yeah, I could talk about this stuff for hours, but... Ugh, man, that twists that twists my heart a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you met Julia when you did and that you listened. And that actually was kind of one of my random questions I was going to ask you was like, do you and your coworkers have like a Jeopardy thing where you see the answers people gave you and see if you can guess at this point? We don't. And I think it's actually really important that that we don't, in part because we can't tell, right? Like the the reason why this is so hard is not because doctors are bad or doctors are not 
trained enough or too lazy or what have you. It's because this is a really difficult problem, right? Like there are, there are some conditions, like you said, where, you know, you can see somebody walking down the street or being in a wheelchair, like being wheeled down the street. And you can tell you're just, you know, that kid has, kid has red syndrome. I just know it. That sometimes happens, but a lot of the time you're going to think that kid's got red syndrome, but you're going to be wrong because they actually have something else. And so for us, we, try to let the technology speak for itself and we have no hands in uh, in that part of it because you you just make those mistakes where you think i've seen you know thousands of these patient profiles i know what's what when like you definitely don't <laughs> actually thank you for that honest and full of integrity answer i i very much appreciate it okay we'll tell families where they can find you and how they can contact you Sure. You can either go to probablygenetic.com and reach out to us directly on the website, or you can send me an email at lucas at probablygenetic.com. And that's Lucas with a K. Awesome. Okay. Well, Lucas, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for creating Probably Genetic. I'm really looking forward to sharing our conversation with, with our audience. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thanks for making time, Effie, to have me on your podcast. I really enjoyed it. And Thank you also for all the great work you're doing. I told you before, our whole team are huge fans of your podcast. And I wish that there were a lot more episodes and also just a lot more people doing the work that you're doing because, yeah, like advocacy and educating people about genetic and rare diseases is, I think, one of the most important things for this space. So thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Lucas. Let's go find patients. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, Please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.